Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with Auntie Vice. It's good to be back. And today I am thrilled. I have Kate Sloan. Some of you may know her site, Juicy Girl. If you've listened to the podcast at all, we know you know that like half of the people who come on here recommend her podcast, The Dildorks, <laughs> as one of the best introductions to, to kink and sexuality. And if you've ever been on my site, you know a bunch of her stuff is also on my top recommendations. So welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I do have to say uh, my site is actually called Girly Juice, but I do get people calling it Juicy Girl a lot. Like I understand why that happens. Yeah, but <laughs> it is called Girly Juice. But thank you for having me. I can always find it. I always flip it in my head when I say it. So yes, yeah, uh, Girly yeah. Juice. That is. <laughs> so you know, you've you've done your career as a writer, especially around sex and sexuality, and. We've had a few people on here who've done it, but in general, most people don't grow up thinking, I want to be a sex writer. So <laughs> origin story. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really grow up knowing I wanted to do this, actually, but it's one of those things where, like, if you look back, all the pieces are kind of there. It just took me a while to put them together. Um, but I had ambitions for a long time of wanting to do musical theater and wanting to be a singer-songwriter. And then when I finished high school, I took a year off before I decided what to do, like what to major in for university. And in that time, one of the things I did was I applied to work at a sex shop and I didn't even get an interview. Like they didn't respond to me at all. But like in the process of applying, I was like, I should probably sort of brush up on my sex toy knowledge. I had always been sort of a sex nerd, always been interested in sexuality and like been listening to sex podcasts and stuff from a young age. And I started looking at stuff online and I found sex toy review blogs and I had always been a good writer and like gotten good grades in English class and stuff. And I was like, maybe just like, you know, for a year or even a summer, I'll start a blog and maybe I can get people to send me free sex toys and talk about them. And I started that when I was 19 and now I'm 31. And over the course of the past 12 years, I have uh, I've blogged for a lot of that time. I've kept the blog going, but also I've written a couple of books on sexuality and related topics. And um, I've been a journalist. I've been writing for sites like GQ and Cosmo and Glamour. And, uh, and I started a sex podcast. And I've just gotten an opportunity to do all these really interesting and cool things within the sexuality space. And it's fantastic. So I want to talk about a gap year because I taught at university for a while and I know when I went through school and now seeing, you know, other generations go through, there's a lot of pressure in high school to go directly to college and go to directly mm -hmm. into that four year. Uh, 
gap years are being more talked about. How'd you come up? How'd you decide that you needed that year? It's a really good question. Um, So I went to an arts high school that was like fairly liberal and relaxed. And one of the things that they offered was a fifth year. You could just stay for a fifth year and take additional classes. And uh, it was often people would do it so that they could get their grades up for better like university applications. But I didn't really have a need to do that. I just like didn't feel ready to leave. Like I just really felt like this was my home. This was my community. And I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go next. And so I took a fifth year and I took a lot of classes that I hadn't been able to take and sort of focused in on stuff that made me really happy, like creative writing and visual art and improv. And during that year, like I still didn't really come up with what I wanted to do, but I applied to a bunch of programs and I ended up getting into a program called Arts and Contemporary Studies, which was like very sort of general humanities. And I wasn't feeling great about it, but I was like, I guess this is what I should do if I don't really know what I want to do, because I could probably do a lot of different things with a degree like this. And I showed up on the first day and I started crying and I just didn't stop crying the whole day. <laughs> like I was oh. going to all these different classes and just quietly crying and something just felt wrong. I was scared. I was anxious. And I talked it over with my parents and I kind of decided like, I don't think I'm actually ready for this. I don't think that this is right for me. I don't know what it is though. So my parents were very, very helpful. I was very lucky and they helped me withdraw from the program, get my money back. And I took the year off to think about it. And at some point during that year, I went to this like convocation ceremony at my high school and I saw an ASL interpreter on the stage and I was watching this person. I was thinking about how like ASL is something that I had always been kind of interested in. I was like, huh, like, I wonder if I should like go study ASL. But as soon as I had that thought, I was like, maybe I should study something that like I've done before and that I know I'm good at. And then my mind went, oh, like writing has to be writing and then I was like what if I go to journalism school and I just kind of had that epiphany in that moment and looked into it and that ended up being what I decided to do but, but I think that if I had tried to rush into something it would have been totally the wrong thing and it would have taken me down the totally wrong path for me well and that's what I've seen with with kids who come in and they're not ready for college but they feel a need to stay um, mm -hmm. I am a big proponent of taking that extra time to figure it out. And it sounds like it worked really well for you. Yeah, I think it's wild that we try to essentially make kids get on the track for their adult career when they're like 18. Like nobody really makes great decisions when they're 18. I certainly didn't. So it seems odd to me. Yeah, I've, I've never thought of 18 year olds as competent decision makers. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. We we do that in university. Um, <laughs> so you got a degree in journalism, which is a little different than a lot of the sex writers we have on the show who go into psychology or human sexuality. How has that journalism background influenced how you write and how you think about sex? I was very lucky in that the school I went to allowed me to focus on sex journalism for a lot of the stuff that I did during my degree like it was even in my entrance essay I the question was something like tell us about a piece of journalism that has influenced you and made you want to become a journalist and I wrote about this essay by Grant Stoddard who I think was writing for Vice at the time that was about it was sort of a like firsthand experience essay about going to a massage parlor to get a hand job and I just thought it was so funny and so well-written and also a little bit journalistic and that like it gives you information about what this is like and how to maybe do it if you want to do it. And so I wrote about that and they accepted me and I was 
I was really surprised, but I was also like, I feel like this bodes well. And, you know, I couldn't do uh, sex journalism for all my assignments. I did have to do normal, you know, business law reporting, that kind of thing. But anything that they gave me free reign on, I I did on sex stuff. Like I did my final project for journalism school was an audio documentary series about kink and mental health. And um, and I also minored in psychology uh, at school, which I think was really super helpful for the sex journalism stuff. But I think that the main thing for me is one of the big tenets in journalism is clarity and readability. And the idea is sort of if you're writing for newspapers, for example, you're writing for a, a really wide range of people who have different backgrounds and different levels of understanding of different topics. And I think that that has been really helpful in writing about sex because so many assumptions are made when we talk and write about sex in terms of what people already know or what people should know, what people should be good at. And I really try to come at it from a place of like non-judgment and not making a lot of assumptions and trying to be helpful because so many people bring so much shame to conversations about sex. And I just really want to get rid of that if I can. It's one of the reasons I recommend your stuff because I come at it from a backward end. I was an academic by training. Mm -hmm. And so when you write for academics and policy, it is very jargon laden and there's a lot of assumptions of what your base knows. So learning to write in a way that's clear for the average person, for me, took a lot of untraining. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with your background, it comes across and I, I think it's one of the reasons so many folks on the show recommend your stuff is because it is accessible to a very wide group of folks. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that um, comes, you, you mentioned you've been doing this for 12 years. What's been some of the most surprising things you've learned in those 12 years of working in, in sex and journalism and writing? I think probably one of the biggest things for me was figuring out that I was kinky because I, as I said, like I had been a sex nerd since I was a kid. Like I think since I was like, I don't know, nine years old or something when I got on the internet and started looking up masturbation techniques online. And I thought of myself as a very sexually self-aware person. And I even like had read a fair bit of kink erotica, kind of checking it out, seeing if it, you know, did anything for me. And I didn't really feel like it did. But I think that it just took me a long time of self-exploration and like working on internalized shame as well as sort of like dispelling internalized narratives about how kink needed to look because I think a lot of the ideas I had about kink were based in sort of like a punitive like mean sort of dominance hurting a submissive kind of thing and that is not usually what draws me to it I'm more into sort of like a, a nurturing style of dominance and so I think that doing this work allowed me to learn things about myself. And like now kink is a pretty core focus of what I do. And also, I think I've also learned a lot about the asexuality spectrum during this time. And that's been really influential on me as well, because I've realized that I am demisexual, which is on the asexual spectrum. It basically means like I need an emotional connection or some emotional familiarity in order to have a sexual attraction to someone. And learning about this has been huge for me because I just look back at so many experiences of my life and I was like, oh, like that makes sense as to why like I never really got into casual hookups and I really tried like I gave it my best effort. I wanted to be good at them, but I just never really 
could get into it and uh it helped me give myself permission to just like be who I really am sexually and not try to be having all the sex all the time with all the people that's fantastic and I love that you come at dominance from a more nurturing perspective and a more connected perspective because I think for a lot of people the image especially of anybody who's femme of dominance is like the angry German lady yelling at you and uh <laughs> yeah right? we that that's a very easy image for most of us to access even if you're not into kink so where did you find good representations of other forms of dominance that that helped you realize that there were alternatives? So I'm a switch. I would say I'm kind of more submissive leaning for the most part, but like definitely my dominance has has come up more and more in recent years. And I think that what really made things click into place for me was discovering daddy dom little girl as a kink, because that's just like a a dynamic that typically has a lot of nurturing built into it and I also really liked the age play element of it I think like I was a kid who was always sort of the smart kid and the oldest daughter and so I think I felt pushed to act more mature than I was from a pretty young age and so to be able to consensually regress in age or in persona like that with a partner who I trust and who accepts me is really really special and it's healing beyond just like being a turn on like it's been genuinely healing for like childhood trauma shit for me and um i also think that the movie secretary was a big thing for me like i saw it when i was a lot younger and i didn't really get it at the time but when i revisited it as i was starting to figure stuff out i saw myself in that character played by maggie gyllenhaal because she's sort of seeking emotional catharsis and connection through pain as well as some stuff that's like maybe a little less healthy like she's seeking some distraction from her troubles in her life and she's in some way like using it as a substitute for self-harm which like there's a debate to be had there about like whether that's healthy or good but uh I think I saw in that dynamic that kink can be really healing and really helpful for people and um, and the other thing that was like really crucial to my kink awakening was Sherlock fan fiction. <laughs> like, uh, I truly don't know how much longer it would have taken me to figure this stuff out if I hadn't gotten really into Sherlock and started reading Sherlock fan fiction because it was so kinky and I was reading about submissive John and dominant Sherlock and I was like, why is this turning me on so much? Why can't I stop? Why am I staying up till three in the morning reading these stories? And it gave me a little buffer where I was able to be like, well, I'm not really into it. I just think it's cool that like John Watson is into it. And then I started to be like, no, maybe I am into it. I think I am into it. That's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, one of the things that's really blown up is the Dildorks. It's it's a very well-received and, and highly listened to podcast. How did that come about? Yeah, so... My best friend, Billy Lore, who is uh, an indie porn performer, I met him at a sex bloggers retreat in 2015. It was a bunch of us getting together in a beach house in Oregon, and it was organized by my friend Epiphora, who's a sex toy reviewer. And I had seen Billy around on Twitter. I had agreed with a lot of his tweets, and we had sort of tweeted at each other occasionally, but I don't think I knew like that this was going to be a person who would become really important to me. And... We hung out at that retreat, and then a few months later, 
he came to Toronto to come to this sex conference called the Playground Conference that was being held here. And we ended up having a impromptu threesome with uh, a guy there who I had a crush on, who I introduced to Billy. And it was such a weirdly bonding experience. <laughs> like the threesome itself was like fine. It was cute, whatever. But like truly by the end of that day, I was like, oh, this is my best friend now. And we like went out for mac and cheese together after the conference and just like talked about the threesome and the conference and all this stuff. And this was just a person who was a sex nerd in the way that I had always been a sex nerd. And we can just have these endless conversations about weird esoteric kink and queerness and gender stuff for hours. And about a year after we became best friends, I had tweeted something about like wanting to start a podcast because I'd had a podcast when I was much younger, when I was 12 with my little brother um, in the very early days of podcasting. And I was always kind of like, that was fun. Like that was a cool, fun medium. I have radio people in my family so audio is like kind of in my blood and I tweeted about wanting to maybe start a sex podcast and Billy sort of like slid into the replies like uh, hey like I've always wanted to start a sex podcast too like let's talk about this and we had a lot of brainstorming sessions eventually we came up with the name and tagline for the show the dildorks dorky discourse on sex dating and masturbating and we started in 2016 so this year it'll be seven years that we've been doing it and um, it's really evolved a lot over the years, but uh, I think it's like definitely some of my favorite conversations I've ever had about sexuality related stuff in my life and definitely some of the work that I'm the most proud of. And I just think Billy is so brilliant and I'm so lucky to have him as a co-host. Well, and for our listeners, if you haven't checked it out, you really do. It's it's fun. You can pick up <laughs> literally any episode and it's they're just fun conversations because we have a lot of nerds because I'm a nerd and that's <laughs> who gets attracted to this show, too. <laughs> yeah. So you've mentioned your family. How have they responded to all of your work? My family have been really, really great. Um, I started my blog when I was still living with my family. Actually, like the first six years-ish of my blog, I was still living at home. And I started to receive all these packages in the mail that were sex toys that were being sent to me to review. And I hadn't told them yet. And my mom like took me aside one day. She was like, I'm kind of concerned like that you might be shopping online too much. Like, are you racking up a lot of credit card debt? Like, I'm worried about you. And so I had to explain to her like what was actually going on. But my parents were completely chill about it, honestly. Like they had known for a long time that I'd been interested in this stuff. I had been out as bi to them since I was 15. And they were really cool about that as well. And it's just like not really been an issue. My dad prefers not to read my work. It's just sort of like a personal comfort thing, which is fine with me because I, you know, probably would tend to self-censor more if I knew that certain family members were reading it. Uh, but my mom is like my biggest fan. Like she reads and consumes everything I do and, and just is so supportive. And yeah, I've just been really blessed. That's fantastic. One of the other things you, you've talked and write about is um, mental health. And mm -hmm. you live with bipolar type two. Things have changed since I was diagnosed, which was 30 plus years ago, like before you were born. So <laughs> for you, how did you realize something was wrong and how was it to find help? Yeah, it's kind of tough to talk about because like I still sort of have my reservations about the whole idea of like mental health diagnosis labels to begin with. Like I think it's complicated and has a complicated history. What with like the DSM previously having said that like homosexuality or like 
sexual sadism were you know diseases and so I don't entirely know how I feel about it but that is my diagnosis and I do think that it, it fits to some extent and from a young age I would have depressive episodes where I would just be inconsolable and just like mired in shame and despair and then I would also have sort of manic or hypomanic episodes where I was just like super bubbly and energetic and optimistic and creative and productive. And I eventually went to a doctor about it and I was like, what's up with this? It's it's kind of annoying. And uh, I got that diagnosis and I did eventually go on Wellbutrin, which has helped a significant amount. And I, But I also think more than that, trauma therapy has helped, which is like part of why I'm a little skeptical on diagnoses these days, only because... I think in my case and probably in many people's cases, like the the trauma root is an important piece of many of these things. It's not to say that there's nothing like biomedical going on, but I think that it's definitely like worth thinking about. And uh, I've just done like a three year stint of trauma therapy and I'm just feeling like a like a different person. Like I just I make better choices. I feel better about myself. It's just like it's a whole new ballgame out here. I do think that gets left off a lot when we come to diagnosis, especially bipolar, because mm -hmm. I'm bipolar one. So I, I live more in that manic, hypomanic uh, zone. But, you know, there's there's the trauma that goes with it. There's also so much physical stuff that we ignore. And I know you've talked about having fibromyalgia in the past. Do you find there are physical things related to the mood swings that come in? And if so, how? Yeah, um, people think that fibro can be rooted in trauma, uh, along with a lot of other sort of autoimmune and chronic pain diseases, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I find that it's all sort of related. All the body-mind stuff is very interlinked. So if I'm stressed out mentally, it will affect me physically. And if I'm having a hard time physically, it will affect me mentally. And, you know, So I have to be really careful about self-care and stress management and this has become like a really high priority in my life like I started trying to take Wednesdays off every week weekend Wednesday because uh I just needed a reset in the middle of the week because I was finding I was just like run down and exhausted by Friday so that's been great I've been trying to limit my social media usage also because I feel like it's just a lot of stress and tension that I don't need to be taking in. Like I can read the headlines and, you know, know what's going on, but I don't have to scroll through a thousand tweets of hatred and, and chaos every day. Yeah, it's just it, it is a constant battle, especially since I remember what it was like before I had fibro before the fibro got bad when especially when I would be really hypomanic and I would be super productive and just like cranking out blog posts and stuff and I can be very self-judgmental now about that not being the case anymore and that not being possible um but that's just kind of how it goes and I do occasionally have manic episodes where I'll get like really obsessed with something and just like crank out thousands of words and that's really exciting still when that happens so it does change when you have any type of chronic pain disorder, it does change how you move through the world. The other thing with chronic pain that often comes up is anybody who's in a feminine body, it's often seen as you're just seeking attention, you're making it up. Did you get any pushback in trying to get help for the for the pains you were experiencing? 
Yeah, I had a terrible doctor uh, who I who had been my doctor since I was in my, I think, early teens. And I went to see her for about six years on and off, just every time being like, also still having that thing where my whole body hurts all the time. Uh, do we know if there's anything I can do about that? And I was sent for tests, a number of different tests to see if it was something joints related or what have you. And nothing really came back. And my doctor was just like, I think it's just depression related pain, which is a thing, but also that's not super helpful. And and I didn't feel like there was really enough due process in terms of finding help. So I eventually, this was the work of my spouse, who is one of my biggest advocates. They like put together a list of chronic pain clinics in my area and told me to basically go to the doctor and be like, I want you to refer me to one of these because I think I have fibro. And I went and it was really hard. I have a really hard time with this type of interaction. Um, and the doctor even was like, I don't know. I don't think that that's like really going to help. I don't think that there's a reason to do that. And I was like, no, like this is really important to me. So I got referred. I got the fibro diagnosis. I was referred for programs that could help with things like mindfulness for pain and exercise for pain. And uh, also was connected with um, some information about using cannabis for pain, which I had been doing anyway, but it was helpful to like talk to an actual doctor about that. And yeah, it's just amazing how I think fibro in particular and other like sort of invisible illnesses or invisible disabilities are just so discounted and, and mental health falls into that as well. Um, and it's, it's something that I have like a lot of imposter syndrome about still, because I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, you look fine. You look like you could totally do all the things that are on your to-do list today. What's wrong with you? And it's like, well, I have to listen to my body. That's really important. How has the process of getting comfortable with that? Because as someone who's, who's gone through that, who was able to do all the things all the time and it wasn't a problem. And now it's so much about taking care of the body. It, it, it's a hard process. And mm -hmm. for me, I know there was a lot of grief with not being able to do what I used to do. For you, adapting to where your body is now, what was that process like for you? I think my spouse is one of my biggest allies in this regard. And it's still an issue. And I would say like almost every day when I talk to them, they say like, well, how was your day? And I say, I don't know. I didn't get as much done as I wanted to, but it's okay, I guess. And they will almost always be like, well, yes, you did though. Like you got a ton of stuff done and they're like listed to me. And part of that is I have, I have a to-do list that I keep in a note that we both have shared access to as part of our DS dynamic. And so they can see what I'm doing. They can see what I'm actually getting done. And so they will remind me like, that's actually a lot for someone in your position and you have to have self-compassion. And the other thing was as part of the trauma therapy process, um, the moda the main modality of trauma therapy that I've been doing is internal family systems, which is a thing where you sort of talk to different emotions and parts of yourself as if they were like actual people. Um, and so I've had sort of these conversations with the parts of myself that are like young and scared and are the roots of these feelings of inadequacy. And I can sort of sit down with them and go like, okay, you're, you're really scared because you feel like you didn't get enough done today. Like, what are you scared that that means? What are you scared is going to happen because of that? And I can just like listen to their concerns and give myself a hug and ask like, what can I do right now to help you feel better about this situation? 
whether it be get one more thing on the to-do list done so I feel good or whether it be like something really relaxing, take a bath or whatever. And that's been really helpful because I think when you don't examine that feeling of just sort of like panic and self-judgment, it just sort of stays. And I think you need some kind of method to be able to work through that, whether that's IFS or journaling or talking to a therapist or talking to a friend or whatever it may be. You mentioned that it's also crept into the DS dynamic. So do you want to talk about how that dynamic has helped manage and work with both the the trauma as well as the the pain and the body stuff? Yeah, sure. It's been huge. Um, So my partner is my daddy dom. And I had a couple other people before them who I called daddy. But it just didn't have the same degree of like safety. Like one of the most devastating things that ever happened to me in my life was when my first daddy Dom broke up with me because I think that that dynamic had made me feel or or made the even like the younger, smaller parts of myself feel like, oh, this is a person who in some level like loves me unconditionally. And then that just suddenly wasn't true anymore. Um, But with my spouse, we've been together about five and a half years. We've built this dynamic that feels very trusting and safe and they are very interested in helping me foster emotional safety but also helping me with my productivity um so they they've been integral in like a lot of keeping me going when I'm having a hard time and uh like for example when I was working on my first book we worked out a like regimented system where I had a certain amount of chapters that I had to complete every week and if I hit the goal they would send me dinner on Friday night and just little things like this that really help me keep moving along and help me feel like I'm actually accomplishing something. And I also think with the fibro and with the depression and anxiety and whatnot, sadomasochism has been really super helpful for me. And my partner has a very good understanding of like when I might need that and what I might need out of it. And so some of the most intense and connective scenes we have are when I've had like a really tough day and they will give me a spanking and be saying stuff the whole time. Like you are such a good girl and you did so well for me today. And I'm so proud of you and you're smart and you're accomplished and you're talented. And something about the combination of hearing those types of things while I'm receiving pain, just like makes the tears come. It just like hits the cry button and it just like brings on this big cathartic cry is really helpful for sort of like resolving that stress cycle and and calming down so that's been great I I think that's fantastic I actually got a text from somebody the other day that says they 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 are just discovering kink and they're like I'm sitting here and I really want to cry so I'm telling myself you need to cry you need to cry and I realized I was just really a Capricorn with that which (laughs) made me like trying to project manage your crying right and I'm like no, kink can be really helpful for that in a very yeah. positive way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the crying can be feel wonderful, especially after a really crappy day or week. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny that you say that because my partner is a Capricorn and it definitely like comes through in the way that they dominate me. Like they're like very organized and regimented about it, which I really appreciate. Yeah, there, there's some truth. <laughs> um <laughs> How has both the the fibro and the the bipolar affected your sex life? Hmm. Well, one of the things that I feel very lucky about 
oddly enough, is that my relationship is long distance. We're currently trying to bridge the gap. I'm in the process of a green card application so I can move to the States. But for five and a half years, we've been long distance. And so a lot of our sex, probably, I don't know, 80% of the sex we've had has been phone sex. And I have actually, I, I always used to think I could never be in a long distance relationship because I like sex too much. And I also used to think I could never really do phone sex because that just seems awkward to me. But being in this relationship, I've actually learned how much phone sex is super helpful for me with both my mental and physical health stuff. Because if I'm trying to have sex with someone in person, first of all, there's a lot more physically moving around. Um, but secondly, there's just sort of a higher toll energetically in terms of I just have stuff going on, like, what does my face look like right now? And like, did I remember to shave my legs? And, you know, just all this stuff crowding my brain that just doesn't really need to be there when we're having phone sex. And so it still feels very intimate and very connective and very sexual. And like, there's pleasure and there's orgasms, but it doesn't require as much physical or mental energy of me. And it doesn't require me to look good or even to have showered recently which sometimes can be an issue with depression or fibro and so that's been really great um I other than that I would say like there's just physical adjustments that I need to make that I didn't used to have to make but they're not that big of a deal like I really like giving blowjobs and I just I need to put a pillow down under my knees now to do it <laughs> stuff like that but you know there's a lot of uh physical positioning aids out there of course and and different ways of dealing with these issues so it hasn't really been that bad right how did you get comfortable with phone sex because for a lot of us it's awkward especially at the start mm -hmm. yeah I think for one thing it's important to figure out what you like about sex that can be translated to that medium um I really like being told what to do for one thing which you can definitely do over the phone um the other thing is my partner and i have had a lot of conversations about topping and bottoming in the kink sense and how we both feel about both of those things in, in the sense of topping being the one like giving sensation or doing the thing and bottoming being the person receiving sensation or receiving the thing and my partner actually really prefers to be the top in phone sex, meaning like they're usually the ones saying most of the stuff. And my role is kind of just like to react and just make the noises I'm going to make and my breathing changes in the way it's going to. And I will say stuff, but um, mainly I'm listening and reacting and just doing what they tell me, grabbing the toys that they tell me to use or whatever. And that was really helpful for me because I, despite being a literal sex writer I am not always great with the dirty talk like it's just not uh it doesn't come super naturally to me I have gotten better at it over the years but uh I think that I just get too distracted by trying to string sentences together properly that I can't really like relax and enjoy myself um it does help if there's you know a back and forth so you don't feel like like the responsibility is like solely on you to keep it going but um, my partner, yeah, mainly prefers to to say this stuff. And now that I know that, because we've had all those conversations about it, I do feel like I can just relax and enjoy it more and not feel like I'm performing. Was that the origin of your book, 200 Words That Can Help You Talk About Sex? <laughs> um, so that was after I did the first book, which was 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do. Uh, the same publisher reached out and they had this series, 200 words to help you talk about. And they said, would you like to do sexuality? 
And I was like, yes, absolutely. They'd previously done like uh, art, philosophy, psychology. And I was like, that sounds really great. And uh, after I pitched them my list of 200 words, they came back to me and said, actually, would you mind switching it to be sexuality and gender? Because gender is such a hot button topic right now, especially in the UK, which is where the publishers are. And I was really excited to do that. Like that's a huge responsibility, obviously, like to define, to choose and to define 200 words that are really important in these spheres. Um, but I really enjoyed writing that book. A lot of the words, like I think almost all the words that I ended up choosing were words that I already knew. But the thing is, when you write a book like that, you really have to dive into sort of like the history of those words, like who came up with them and what did they originally mean and how have they changed over the years? And like, what are the criticisms of those terms? And so it was really interesting doing all that research and just learning so much more about like queer and trans history in particular. What are your, some of your favorite terms when it comes to sex and gender? Mm, good question. I'm a femme. I'm a queer femme. And I do think that the history of feminists and sort of the discourse around it has been really interesting. It's interesting to see sort of like how people relate it to butchness, but also how feminists can exist independently of butchness. Uh, the debates are interesting about like whether non-lesbian women can identify as femmes. I think that they can as a bi femme. Um, but so that's cool. I also I don't love the word sapiosexual, but it was interesting to write about it. Um, it's a term that means attracted to intelligence. And it's a term that I used to actually identify with. But as I did the research, I started seeing all these criticisms from people about that it's sort of like elitist and classist and also not really a sexual orientation like we all have traits that we're attracted to they don't have to be an orientation per se um, so that was interesting to learn about and I also like a lot of the words on the asexual spectrum there's demisexual there's gray sexual lots of things there because it's just interesting to see the terms that people have come up with to describe their relationships to sexuality and when you get into discussions of sexual labels a lot of people will go well why do you even need those you're just making stuff up now like can't you just be what you are and I think if you don't want to use labels you don't have to use them but one of the things that's beautiful about labels is that they give you tools for connecting with people who are similar to yourself and tools for explaining to people your deal sexually or gender wise without having to necessarily spend a really long time explaining it if you don't want to. So I really like labels as a writer. I enjoy words. I think words are cool. I think it's really cool how language evolves. And yeah, I really loved writing that book. Growth of terminology around both gender and sexual orientations has been phenomenal. When mm -hmm. I started looking at my own gender around 18, 19. This was like late 80s, early 90s. There were no terms for non-binary or gender non-conforming. Um, mm -hmm. And so to, to see that evolve and actually have terminology, I think people, especially who are younger and get, well, there's just so many, don't know what it's like to just literally not have a word that describes you in your language. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there it's, it's really cool, even when they're problematic terms or the history is kind of riddled with controversy. It's fun. Language is yeah. cool in general. Yeah, Language is really totally. Cool. You talk about being a femme, and I know one of the things you list is that you can't live without is black eyeliner. So 
Yep. Do you have a favorite? I, I am regularly, I love talking to make my sister works uh, for Sephora um, oh, nice. as an ad manager. So yeah, we, there's, there's lots of product in the house. Do you have a favorite black <laughs> eyeliner? I do. And it's come up through years of experimentation. It is Mac liquid last in point black. And the reason I love it is I am a person who, as I've mentioned, cries a lot. I'm also a person who sweats a lot. Um, I, uh, you know, when I was more sexually adventurous when I was younger, sometimes people would be coming on my face. Like there's just like stuff going on on my face. I wanted an eyeliner that would really stay put. For for a lot of years, I was wearing this L'Oreal one that like if there was any hint of moisture, it would just immediately come off and and that was bad and so I found the liquid last and it pretty much stays on like sometimes it'll like flake off if there's a lot of like friction like if I'm like getting fucked with my face in a pillow <laughs> it might not stay on so good but in terms of like moisture like it will stay on it's very black the texture of it's a little weird and hard to get used to but I've been using it for a bunch of years at this point so I'm used to it and yeah I, I didn't do it today but I love a good winged liner it's one of my all-time favorite looks well, these things are important, especially if you're a femme. <laughs> yeah, totally. It affects how you feel about yourself and mm -hmm. uh, and your confidence and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. It is. So we are we are in the peak summer months and we will be coming up on National Kink Month, Folsom Street Fair here in the States. Do you have any events you're looking forward to in the rest of the summer or the fall this year? Hmm. I might need to take a second to think about that. The thing that's coming to mind for me is there's a local outdoor movie screening series here that I usually go to like at least one or two events of. And last year they screened The Birdcage, which is my all time favorite movie and just like a queer classic. Like I think one of the best queer romances on film. Um, and that was super fun. And this year, one of the movies that they're screening is Brokeback Mountain. And I don't think I ever saw Brokeback in theaters. I've definitely seen it a bunch of times since then, but I think it's going to be really amazing to see this like incredible queer epic on this big screen with like a big crowd of people who are probably also mostly going to be queer. And yeah, I think that that'll be really fun. That sounds phenomenal. Um, and just <laughs> having other queer people, it's so nice to do big queer events, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I think that, Sometimes it gets lost in how important it is to connect with others in your community mm -hmm. um, and how supportive that can be. Yeah, I just went with my partner uh, a week or two ago to the Trans March here in Toronto, which is sort of like we have three main Pride Week events, the Trans March, the Dyke March and the Pride Parade. And increasingly, I've just felt like the Pride Parade is too crowded and like too corporate. And I just haven't really felt connected or excited about going in quite some time. Um and we decided to go to the trans march because my partner is non-binary and they were in town and they wanted to go and it was just so it, it felt recharging revitalizing to just be in this huge crowd of queer and trans people and all these people on the sidelines just like yelling their support and holding up cute signs and stuff and it's just such a good energy i love it so if our listeners want to find you want to find your work want to read your books want to listen to your podcast plug all the things yeah, sure. So it's all at katesloan.com, but some of the places you can find me other than that are my sex blog is girlyjuice.net. Lots of sex toy reviews there. Um, my podcast is The Dildorks. 
You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. I also co-host another show called Question Box, which is on hiatus right now, but um, that's a fun one. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at girly underscore juice. And I also do this weekly songwriting challenge on YouTube. If you search me, Kate Sloan on YouTube, you can find I've been writing and recording a new song every week for a year and a half. Um, and that's been fun. Um, and if you're on uh, Archive of Our Own, the fan fiction hub, uh, my username there is girly juice. You can check out all my very smutty succession fanfic. <laughs> that's amazing. Sorry. Sorry, I forgot the books. Um, my two books, which you can get wherever you get your books, are 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do and 200 Words to Help You Talk About Sexuality and Gender. And they're fantastic. And like I said, if you've listened to the show, you know so many of us recommend Kate's work. We'll have all of those links and more for you guys. I'm going to go find some really smutty succession fan fiction because that <laughs> sounds amazing. And uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yes. And for all of you out there, you know, like, subscribe, hit all the buttons, hit a review and uh, check out the show notes because we'll have all the links to Kate's work. And now a moment of gratitude. Mm, a lot of things. Um, I'm very, very grateful for my spouse. I love them so much. They are so supportive and helpful. I'm very grateful, especially lately, for having a job that allows me to essentially create my own schedule because what with all these limitations we've been talking about, like it's very hard to work quote unquote normal hours. And I like being able to just work whenever my brain feels like working. Um, and this is just a current thing. I've been, I I forget if I mentioned that like one of the things with mania for me is I'll just like latch onto an obsession and just get really, really obsessed for a while. And uh, for the past, like, it's got to be three months now. My thing has been the fanfic community for the show Succession. I don't know why. It's just, I can never really like control or predict what these things are going to be. But I've been writing and reading a lot of succession fan fiction. And I'm just like very grateful for that community right now because uh, it's just like there's so much enthusiasm. It's nice to get compliments on my writing uh, from people who like don't even know like what else I'm doing in the world. And they're just like responding to to the stuff that I'm doing. And it's just nice to have like one of the things I love most about the Internet is that it can help connect you with people who are obsessed with the same things as you, which just like didn't exist before that in the same way. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. 
Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.